Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with episode 415 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened this past week in the worlds of AEW and NXT. Of course, AEW coming out of its Revolution pay-per-view, its first such event of 2023, NXT presenting Roadblock, a television special ahead of NXT Stand and Deliver coming up in about one month's time on WrestleMania 39 weekend. As you can tell, there is an absolute ton to discuss on today's show, so we are not going to waste any time off the top. A quick reminder, though, first, that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave a five-star written review, because if you do, we will read that review live right here on the podcast. Why? Because on this show, we love the number five. I happen to love the number five. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. If you do that, you get episode drops, news analysis, highlights, interaction with us. You can send in questions and comments that we will read on the show, and you just get to be part of our listening audience, the Getting Overhead. So again, every reason to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Pretty solid week overall uh, from both AEW and NXT. There were some things on Dynamite uh, this Wednesday that are certainly questionable, and we will be discussing those in a moment. NXT, you could say a little bit of the same. Overall, a strong show from top to bottom, NXT Roadblock. But a couple questions are lingering given there are four weeks left until Stand and Deliver. They're going to start that build, one would presume, next week. So we're going to get into both. Uh, as always, in these Getting Over episodes, we do have timestamps in the episode descriptions, no matter what platform you are listening to us on. So if you only are an AEW or NXT viewer, you can skip around to your section. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. So let's kick things off with AEW, given Dynamite was a show coming out of a pay-per-view. We're going to obviously talk about Dynamite. There's also some leftovers from Rampage on Friday that didn't exactly have to do with Revolution. And we'll wrap all those up together here in this breakdown. I loved the way the show started. A really nice touch using uh, clips from Revolution as the opening to Dynamite. It was just eye-catching. It really got you interested in the show. And if for some reason you didn't watch Revolution, it gave you a little bit of a hint of what happened there and maybe even convinced you, hey, you should go seek it out. Now, Dynamite on Wednesday was one of the most promo-heavy editions of Dynamite we have ever gotten from AEW. And I would say it was both for the better and for the worse. For the better in that it gave a couple people opportunities to shine and it gave some storylines, interesting elements that we necessarily haven't gotten to experience already. For the worse, because what really sets AEW apart from WWE and NXT is the in-ring product. And that's not to say that there's not good wrestling on the main roster or in NXT with WWE. It's just to say that generally, when you tune into an edition of Dynamite, I mean, you can almost be guaranteed to get like two four-star or better matches. And, and that's what they've really been giving us 
for most of 2023 to date. Now, last week, that wasn't really the case. And this week, that wasn't the case. So it all depends on your taste, what you thought about this particular episode of Dynamite. Let's stop beating around the bush and get right to it. On Dynamite, all we got from MJF and Brian Danielson were a couple of taped promos from backstage after Revolution. MJF screamed about being the devil while still being champion. He said he'd be on Dynamite next week for his birthday, where they will do a re-bar mitzvah. Uh, Danielson basically explained that he submitted at the end of the Ironman match to preserve himself for his family. He was really emotional, and he said, quote, it's time for me to go home. Now, at least we got something from these guys. This is unlike many prior situations in AEW where new champions are crowned or there's major moments that you want to hear from those people the following week, and the big stars just don't appear on the show at all. But getting Danielson's promo in front of a live audience would have been tremendous compared to just taping it backstage after the moment. You could say, well, perhaps his emotions wouldn't have been as strong a week, you know, four days later, live in front of the crowd, as opposed to immediately at the end of that match. That's a fair argument. Brian's promo was far better than what we got from MJF's promo. And it does make sense for Danielson to take some time off now coming out of the end of that match. I just feel like if it was done in front of fans, it would have been a promo of the year contender. And instead, it's something that will probably be forgotten at the end of the year. Now, on Rampage, there was a really strange graphic for something called QTV with the Twitter handle at QualityTVAEW. There's also a website that has a blog promising real news and analysis. It seems like they might be doing some type of AEW dirt sheet or something like that. A lot of talent retweeted it. Apparently, this showed up on Dark previously. But again, if it's Dark or on Elevation... Silver King's not going to see it, and a lot of other fans aren't going to see it either. So I was kind of in a wait-and-see approach in terms of what that was. Turns out, it somewhat mattered on Dynamite. Uh, So before we get to Dynamite on Rampage, we had Powerhouse Hobbs against Serpentico. Hobbs walked out with the brass ring, which was just a ridiculous visual for him to be carrying it around. Hobbs hit a spinebuster and a torture rack slam and got a squash win. After the bell, he said he didn't care who won the TNT title at Revolution. Obviously, eventually, it was Wardlow who beat Samoa Joe for the title. The crowd gave him a great reaction on Rampage. It just felt to me like a wholly unnecessary match on a go-home show. Just let the guy cut a promo. It's really all you need to do. On Dynamite, a video from Wardlow showed that his car got broken into with him losing his gear and the TNT title. Hobbs backstage promised to take the title in a pretty pretty much nothing promo. Uh, Wardlow backstage wore gear from FTR, suggesting that they go ahead and do a Falls Count Anywhere match since he's dressed appropriately for it. And it was a good promo overall from Wardlow, I thought. It was strange, though, that he didn't have a replacement TNT title with him, given they exist, and given we saw one later in the show. So the main event of Dynamite was the TNT Championship match, Wardlow defending against Hobbs in a Falls Count Anywhere match. Now, the stipulation was announced as pinfall, knockout, or surrender which to me gave away the finish because there's usually not a knockout component in Falls Count Anywhere matches. That would be a last man standing stipulation. So Wardlow's music hit, no one came out, and it was revealed that he and Hobbs were already fighting in the parking lot. Hobbs grabbed the brass ring out of the car, and I legitimately laughed out loud when he did that. It was kind of like had a video game. Uh, Hobbs took a back body drop ass first into a windshield, Finally in the ring, they no-sold each other's spinebusters. Wardlow hit an F10. Hobbs hit two more spinebusters. Wardlow then hit a swanton bomb on Hobbs 
threw a table outside for a 2.5 count. He next did a powerbomb on the ramp, but he couldn't cover because he was selling an injured midsection. Wardlow then went to powerbomb Hobbs off the stage near commentary when QT Marshall ran in to hit him in the back and the head with a steel chair. Then he and Hobbs did a double toss bomb of Wardlow off the stage into an elevated cushioned mat for the 10 count knockout finish. And a TNT title was literally sitting next to commentary, ready to immediately be given to Hobbs at the end of the match. This despite, again, Wardlow saying he didn't have one. He didn't have his or he didn't have any earlier in the show. So look, everything up until the finish of this match was pretty damn great. It was awesome, I would even say. We got exactly what we wanted to see. <laughs> Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> And the stipulation was generally a smart way to allow someone to win without the other person suffering a pinfall or submission. Really, they should have just done a last man standing match and left it at that. But instead of allowing Hobbs to win the title through his power, his intelligence, his guile, of all people, QT fucking Marshall got involved. Now, there is a story of Hobbs and Marshall going back to the Ricky Starks feud And commentary did briefly allude to that. So QT getting Hobbs back made sense in kayfabe, but it's also the revival of a long past storyline element that is hardly relevant now. And it was just an absolute disappointment, especially coming after a similarly fucked title change with the guns a few weeks ago. Using Wardlow as a transitional champion after his first title reign was already a massive flop, is just such a total eye roll. And yes, he'll probably battle through some hoops and eventually fight Hobbs straight up, maybe even wins the title back. But there is absolutely no juice in this pairing of Hobbs and Marshall because there's just so much other talent not being utilized. And Hobbs is this powerhouse, a literal powerhouse performer who shouldn't be needing anyone's help to win his first title, even against someone like Wardlow. It's dumbfounding, and you know what? It's straight-up shit-booking. What is the point of building this guy up and doing all the vignettes and all that stuff if you're just going to cut one of his legs out from under him in a big moment? Hobbs winning should have been a huge deal. Instead, to many, it was deflating. And by the way, these big hosses are taking massive bumps onto cars, the stage, through a table with one of them jumping off the top rope. But in the biggest moment of the match, AEW uses the foam bullshit for what was a relatively small fall off the stage that was way less dangerous than Wardlow's Swanton Bomb earlier in the match. This is like what AEW has become known for at this point, making the right decisions because strapping up Hobbs is a good decision but frequently doing them in the most ridiculous, inane ways as one could conceive. And that is exactly what happened here on Dynamite. Hangman Page backstage told Renee Paquette he's felt better physically, but he feels much better deep down. He sent a warning to the roster that anyone who wants to try him will get sent to hell like John Moxley did. Page apologized to Renee for the violence, but refused to take any blame, saying he was finally finished with the feud. And it was a solid overall promo from Hangman. It would have been nice to get a hint of a new storyline direction for him. That was my thought in the moment. We soon found out why that was not the case. We had Blackpool Combat Club against Dark Order in a tag team match. John Moxley tapped out Alex Reynolds 
with a front headlock choke. After the bell, he put on a rear naked choke and a bulldog choke as Claudio Castagnoli pushed the referee away and then attacked an interfering John Silver. Evil Uno finally ran down and broke it. Wheeler Yuta missed his cue to stop Uno, but eventually did. Hangman then ran down and ignored Mox, but took a shot at Claudio. Claudio eventually answered back with a European uppercut, and then Mox and BCC all jumped on Hangman, beating him down until referees and Evil Uno jumped in to separate everyone and end the segment. So now we know why that new direction wasn't started for Hangman, because he's staying with John Moxley in this Dark Order BCC type of feud. Now, it seems like we're going to get, I don't know, a trios feud here, but the question is, to what end? It feels like time for Hangman to rejoin the Elite. Maybe a loss in this feud will get that started, especially if Kenny Omega winds up focusing on singles action in the near future. But this whole thing is awkward. Continuing it is awkward. Them fighting BCC and Dark Order again after they've already fought before and Mox already fought Uno and now he's already fought Hangman four times. It's like, why can't we move on from this? So my hope is it's something that they're doing just for a couple of weeks. Then they'll end it and they'll move on to whatever they're going to build for Double or Nothing. But right now, a little bit disappointing that it's continuing. On Dynamite, Ricky Starks hit the ring, putting himself over before saying he's not sure what's next. And a better question is actually where he's going to go next. I have no idea what he meant by that. Suddenly, a Bullet Club graphic popped on the big screen with Juice Robinson attacking him from behind. For those who don't know, Juice is a former NXT talent who made a huge name for himself in New Japan and then signed with AEW a few months ago. He briefly popped up on TV and then just didn't return to TV. It was a nice moment. Could have been better if it lasted longer than 20 seconds. I do think some fans, when they saw the Bullet Club logo, assumed it was Jay White, but... First of all, he's no longer in Bullet Club because he's no longer in New Japan and he's barred from New Japan and Japan itself. So it really looks like he's headed to WWE, but there were a number of fans who did uh, take that bait and they thought it was Jay White in that situation. On Dynamite, Ruby Soho entered for an in-ring interview with Soraya and Tony Storm uh, returning backstage after initially making the entrance. Soho explained that fans cheered Britt Baker, Chris Statlander, and Jamie Hayter in Ruby's most important matches to date. She also said fans didn't care about Tony when she debuted, which was purely false, and that fans begged Soraya to return only to turn on her immediately. That's half true. She said the only way to fix AEW is to break it down and rebuild it. She insulted the fans. Now, heels don't always need to be accurate, and Soho being a bit delusional here, that's perfectly fine. It was a strong promo, got plenty of heat from the live crowd, and she did a better job in this promo, making this group feel important and relevant than anything Storm and Soraya have done to date. So Soho fought Sky Blue, Ruby won with Destination Unknown, and then started spray painting Blue alongside Soraya and Storm when Willow Nightingale ran down for the save and to try to talk some sense into Ruby. She quickly got beat down and ate no future before getting sprayed. Now, credit to AEW for actually doing a featured women's segment 30 minutes into the show. We only got three minutes of wrestling, though, after commercial, But it was an extended segment overall that was much more storyline-driven than match-driven, so that's totally fine. The only kind of ironic part, I guess, is AEW made this huge deal about it being International Women's Day, and when they had that match early in the show, I was like, oh my god, we may actually get two women's matches or two extended women's segments on the show, and instead, this was, again, the only significant women's action or or women's segment that we got on Dynamite. Jade Cargill did appear later, but I mean, it was 30 seconds. So they made a huge deal about International Women's Day. And I guess to them, 
you know, paying that off as putting the women in hour one instead of an hour two. But it was a really good segment uh, overall. Ruby also got uh, one of her gauge uh, earrings ripped out accidentally. That was pretty gnarly. Overall, one of the stronger women's segments recently. And like I said, Ruby did more for this than either Storm or Soraya have done to date. On Dynamite, FTR entered to a great crowd chant. Cash Wheeler talked about losing all their titles and losing Jay Briscoe, but being spurned to return because they can't stand watching the spoiled, entitled, and disrespectful guns parade around as champions. Dax Harwood talked about loving the fans and wanting retribution on the guns, promising to go after the titles quickly. It was a strong babyface promo because the fans loved it. To me, the promo was a bunch of nothing, and there's really not much else to take away from it. On Rampage, Keith Lee and Dustin Rhodes fought Swerve Strickland and Parker Bordeaux. Lee came out in a black cloak late in the match. He did an awesome one-hand toss slam of Swerve. Parker then low-blowed him while on the ropes in clear view of the referee, no DQ. Swerve double-stomped Lee's shoulders for a near fall. Tagging just stopped at this point. Dustin hit a Canadian destroyer on Swerve, then had Keith throw him into Parker before Lee hit the Big Bang catastrophe for the win. Nice baby face pop for the finish. And I do like Keith's look going with the natural gray hair and the gray trunks. He looks like an angry grandpa. Again, doing a tag team match in this feud and not going Keith Swerve one-on-one at Revolution was nonsensical to me. And my only other takeaway is that for a guy his size with a football background, Parker is one of the least believable wrestlers I can remember. He is truly awful in the ring right now. On Rampage, Konosuke Takeshka backstage said he's not happy at his lack of significant victories and therefore was considering a return to Japan. Suddenly, Don Callis stepped in with his card and a mentorship offer. Callis said he'd drive him to the airport himself if their partnership didn't work out. And I've just been waiting for this to develop. They've been teasing it for months at this point. I'm definitely excited to see where it goes. On Rampage, Blackpool Combat Club fought Dark Order, Top Flight, and Aussie Open. Now, I should have probably mentioned this earlier, but alas, I did not. Uh, What was funny about this match is it started with Jim Ross having no idea why the match was happening, and he wasn't wrong. Despite that, it was pretty fun. Dark Order went on their run of offense against Darius Martin, only for Wheeler Yuta to jump in with a double stomp and lock in Rings of Saturn for the win. Dark Order then attacked because that's what happens after every match in AEW. Nothing happened, though, because of it. Again, it was a fun match, but really nothing more. On Dynamite, we had the JAS against Top Flight and AR Fox. Fox rolled through a missed 450 and hit a double cutter and a pull-up cutter. Darius caught Chris Jericho with a Spanish fly. Fox then hit the inverted springboard cannonball outside, but Jake Hager hit Darius in the back with the bat before Jericho added Judas Effect for the win. JAS did their shtick. They praised themselves for their one-year anniversary of their formation and demanded a trio's championship match. Now, they also demanded House of Black hit the ring to accept, but instead, after the lights went out, the elite entered. Kenny Omega pointed out, They've all stayed out of each other's business thus far in AEW, which is just not true. I mean, technically with the JAS and the Elite have stayed out of each other's business, but Inner Circle and the Elite, they had the stadium stampede match. So like, I don't even know what he's talking about. They had a huge long rivalry. Anyway, uh, he was about to talk about the trio's titles when Callis grabbed the mic saying they are still number one contenders. Callis said Jericho is indeed one of the greatest of all time but he's the second best from Winnipeg, of course, Omega being the best. Uh, Then the lights went out. House of Black appeared on the screen saying both teams deserve to get beaten. And if they want the titles, he trailed off. The lights went out again. They appeared on the ramp. Then he says to come get them being the titles. The lights went out a third time and they were gone. The gimmick, it's just getting tired to me. Like I'm okay with it. It's just Doing the same thing every week. I guess it was different this week because they went from the screen to reality. 
But like, I mean, what was the show where the lights went out five times? It was like last week that happened, or maybe it was on the pay-per-view. I don't even remember. Uh, it was just, I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it's gimmicky. That's really what I'm trying to say. Now, the match, I didn't care one iota about it. The post-match was a blast with all three teams getting involved. It just felt to me like a better booking for Winnipeg would have been Omega versus Jericho with the winner's team getting the title match or the Elite versus JAS with the exact same stipulation. JAS has done absolutely nothing to earn a title shot, and the Elite literally just lost the titles. So I like this segment a lot. I just didn't care for the booking. It's another example of Tony Khan being a better matchmaker than he is a booker. And we're going to talk more about Tony momentarily. On Dynamite, we had an all-Atlantic championship match, Orange Cassidy against Jay Lethal. This was the third match between them. It was excused by Tony as having gotten high ratings previously, yet it was in the first quarter hour of the show, which is usually the highest rated quarter of the show. And it was in that same spot this week. So if it gets another higher rating, he'll be able to point to that, even though it's a rematch. And if it was anywhere else on the show, it probably would have been a lower rated segment. Also, by the way, Orange won the last meeting, so Lethal doesn't even have a reason to be going after the title again. There was also a huge technical mistake where commentary oddly got piped into the crowd before the bell. Anyway, the match, Orange hit a tornado DDT, but his knee gave out trying an orange punch. Lethal hit a nice Uranagi over the knee into a flatliner, but Orange got double knees up on an elbow drop. Lethal then countered orange punch with an RKO. He then tried lethal injection, but the shoulder he was selling gave out. That led him to collapse with Cassidy hitting the orange punch to retain the title. The referee stopped Lethal from attacking with the Golden Globe after the bell. That was a distraction. So Jeff Jarrett could run into the ring and hit Orange with the stroke. Jarrett then broke his guitar over Orange's knee with best friends making the save. Now, I didn't particularly care for the match, but I loved the finish. Super inventive stuff from Lethal. Really good body part selling from both guys throughout the entire match. The post-match was well executed, but I am so done with these guys being shoved into every title picture. The group has completely overstayed its welcome and Jarrett getting an all Atlantic title shot. Holy shit. That is so tiresome. It actually feels like, I don't know why I can't get this idea out of my head. It feels like they may actually make him a transitional champion and I could see them strapping up to Keshka, you know, having him beat Jarrett. He beats a legend. It's a big win. That's something they could possibly do. We'll have to see how it actually transpires next week. And I say next week because on that note, Tony Khan, who said he would never appear on screen, cut an entire backstage promo with another special announcement that Orange Cassidy would do an open challenge and double J Jeff Jarrett, quote unquote, would fight for the title next week. Not only that, but because the All-Atlantic title has actually been defended internationally or something, they are leveling up the title in partnership with Warner Discovery and the release of Shazam, and renaming it the international title. You see, that levels up the title because it's a special announcement, and they're so excited about Shazam, and they love Warner. So it's totally leveling it up, and don't forget to watch Shazam from Warner because everyone's so excited about it because that's the special announcement that they're leveling up the title and calling it international on behalf of Shazam and Warner. And that's special. Let's not forget. No exaggeration. He said level up about five times. Renaming the title is not leveling it up. Renaming it has nothing to do with Shazam or Warner. It was the most forced synergy I've maybe ever seen in my entire life. And the explanation made zero sense. Not only that, you could tell that Tony was reading a script. The entire thing was so canned. 
And I can't imagine they did five takes of this and that was the best take that they had to use. And really the worst part about the entire thing is that for something that was scripted, it was terribly written. Like they sketched this entire thing out and we still got that hot garbage piece of shit announcement. Now, let's be clear. The All Atlantic name was always dog shit, but at least it was unique. Now it's just another title that sounds like Intercontinental, which we already, of course, have in WWE and was recently retired by New Japan. So now this doesn't even have a unique name anymore. Beyond that, this was another example of something being called a, quote, open challenge that is not an open challenge. Why not just say we've granted Jarrett a title match after his attack on Orange next week? Cassidy agreed to it. This segment was fucking atrocious. And I would have cut and played it for you, but I'm actually sparing you having to listen to it again. Zero point zero. That is one big pile of shit. Oh, and by the way, someone international hasn't even challenged for this title in two months. Only one of the seven challengers for Orange Cassidy in 2023 is something other than American. And that was Kip Sabian back in January. So you're going to call it an international title. You're going to be excited that it's been defended overseas. Get some international people contending for it again. On Dynamite, the acclaimed backstage said their standard stuff. When 2.0 tried to get them to join JAS, given they're clearly sports entertainers, they laughed in their faces. Curious to see what this is with acclaimed away from the title picture, but we'll find out more next week. Uh, Jade Cargill on Dynamite scoffed at the idea that there's anyone left to challenge her, saying she's beaten everyone in AEW. And since they're going to be in Canada next week, she challenged a Canadian to step up to her. Same old, same old. I'm sure there's going to be some surprise opponent. She'll beat them. And just keep holding the title until Statlander eventually returns. And lastly, on Rampage, Rio fought Emi Sakura. Rio hit a 619 in a flying crossbody. Sakura came back with a really cool crossbody in the corner. They did a ton of counters with Sakura, uh, supposed to miss a moonsault only for her head to hit Rio's leg. Then Rio turned a crucifix into a spinning roll up for the win. This was the best part of Rampage this match, at least for me. And it seems obvious Rio is being set up for a title match after being thrown back to back wins in the same week. Usually that's what AEW does. So as you can tell, Dynamite was a huge mixed bag and coming out of a revolution pay-per-view that got a lot of positive feelings going, both from AEW fans and the wrestling world in total. It was a relatively weak follow-up to that. Like people were on the show, someone like John Moxley, they didn't get to speak and they didn't need to be there. There were people who did need to be there that weren't. It was just a real mixed bag of what we got on Dynamite and you know, I don't know why, like when you're booking a major pay-per-view, you should also be booking in a, in a strong fashion, the show that's going to come immediately after it to know where things are going. And it feels like far too often Tony Khan does not do that. So with that, let's move over to NXT for NXT Roadblock, a special edition of the television show. The NXT Women's Championship was on the line in the main event, Roxanne Perez against Mako Satamora. Roxy backstage was juiced for her match because Mako's a legend and Roxy had exhausted every resource to prepare. It was a really good, pure white meat babyface promo with her saying she'll leave it all in the ring to retain the title. Now the bell rang at 9.57 p.m. Eastern with the match immediately going to picture-in-picture commercial. And I, I was like, man, what are they gonna do? Get this eight, nine minutes? Like, this is really strange. That's not what happened. Uh, Mako worked the knee and drilled Roxy with strikes as Perez tried to power through. Roxy countered a kick into a dragon screw and hit three running European uppercuts. Then she dodged Scorpio Rising and hit a tope suicida before failing, both on an avalanche Russian leg sweep and sunset flip powerbomb. But Roxy got double boots up on Satamora's frog splash. 
Perez flipped out of a Death Valley driver and finally hit the Russian leg sweep on her third try, but then she got caught in a crucifix pin that she had to kick out of. Mako caught Roxy with a Pele kick, a Saito suplex, and a Death Valley driver before hitting her Scorpio rising finisher for a 2.9 false finish. Commentary did a really shit job selling that sequence. Uh, Mako held onto the apron to avoid Pop Rocks outside and then hit a step-up head kick at ringside with Roxy, barely getting her boot on the bottom rope to break the count. Mako hit two more big kicks, then tried a third Scorpio Rising, but Perez ducked and bent her backwards with extra leverage for a 1-2-3 fold-up pinfall to retain the title in 14 minutes. Now, after the bell, Satomura presented Perez with the title and lifted her up for an emotional celebration, but Roxy just straight up collapsed, falling forward onto her face. Referees and trainers ran out. Booker T jumped off commentary into the ring. Shawn Michaels ran out to, as Roxy was getting put in a neck brace. She got lifted onto a board and stretchered all the way out of the arena with cameras following her into the ambulance. Now, this ended at 10.15, well after NXT normally ends, so it was clearly kayfabe. Otherwise, they would have cut the transmission, and certainly they wouldn't have kept the camera on them this entire time. Now, first, the match was extremely solid. It sat in second gear for nearly the entire duration. It never seemed to reach third gear, likely due to a combination of Satomura's age and Perez's relative inexperience. That's a tough combination. I went 3.5 stars and a B for this match. I should note, that's also the grade I gave Wardlow and Powerhouse Hobbs in AEW. I forgot to actually grade it during that segment. Both 3.5 star B. Uh, But this fell below my extremely high expectations. What I think most missed about the post-match angle is that it completely fell in line with the story they were telling. Roxy exerting herself and pushing herself more than ever to every degree possible training for the final boss for Mako Satomura. This was not a concussion spot or a cardiac arrest spot, even though she did take multiple blows to the head and chest. This was an exhaustion spot and exhaustion is a legitimate medical condition. I generally don't like kayfabe emergency medical situations, but doing it for exhaustion is the least offensive version of it by far. Now, I wonder about the storyline plan. She could be forced to vacate the title or listed as questionable leading up to stand and deliver with two other women put into the match. Those would be Tiffany Stratton and Lyra Valkyra, who both want title shots and cut promos during NXT. They could have Stratton tear Perez down for her conditioning and use that as an angle. I'm not exactly sure what they're gonna do here. NXT though, in a full 15 minute overrun for the match and a post-match, and I think it's the only, the second time ever that the show has ended that late. So clearly it's a story they believe in. And for what we got, the concern was executed extremely well, especially with Mako's face, Booker springing to action and all of that. It's just gonna be tough to judge whether it's a good angle or not until we see the entire thing play out. Braun Breaker and the Creed Brothers fought Indu Sure, The faces all had matching blue singlets. I always appreciate when temporary teams do stuff like that. Carmelo Hayes came down midway through the match for commentary. The faces also did a trio of high-risk moves in stereo. Breaker hit a topic on Hero. The Creeds both flew off the top rope outside. Braun hit a frog splash with Julius Creed nailing a 450 splash on Sanga. That was a broken fall. The heels executed an elevated assisted flying elbow for another broken fall. Breaker speared Sanga and Jinder Mahal before the Creeds hit a doomsday device style assisted cannonball for the win. Well, let me tell you folks right now what this match was all about. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. There was a lot of beef out there. There's a lot of beef out here. I mean, they must have reinforced the ring post. 
<laughs> Reinforce the ring post. The beat's going to be flying tonight, gentlemen. Because this was straight up a hell of a big man match. Six bruisers just going at it with some legitimate big meaty men slapping meat. <laughs> big meaty men slapping meat. <laughs> that's what I want. I mean, that's what we want to see now. Obviously, the right team won. Everyone involved, including Indusher, looked strong coming out of it. There's not much more analysis to provide. It was just a bunch of fun for a meat fest. And I also gave it 3.5 stars at a B right across the board here for all these matches. Uh, later in the show, Breaker came out to the ring for an unscheduled promo where he said it was time to take care of business and handle what's coming. He called out Carmelo Hayes, who agreed it was time for their paths to officially cross. Braun said he's disappointed they haven't already fought. And they both said that they've been keeping tabs on each other throughout NXT. They also told a story about Triple H and Shawn Michaels sitting them down when NXT turned to 2.0 and putting it on their shoulders. Mello then made the official challenge for Stand and Deliver and extended his hand. Braun shook it, they smiled, and they basically just faced off to end the segment. I thought this was extremely well done. And to my surprise, it was quite interesting in the way it was booked. Mello dropped the overconfident act. Braun was cool, calm, collected, which he never is. And the entire segment was just level-headed with both guys speaking really matter-of-factly about their NXT careers, their aspirations, and the fact that this matchup was inevitable. Now, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of twists and turns in the coming four weeks, but this formal kickoff to the match, it was really well executed. Uh, both of them kind of playing tweeners. I suppose the idea is for the crowd to be split between them and create a really unique atmosphere. It's the match we've been waiting for. The build definitely got off to the right foot. And right now, full speed ahead to stand and deliver. We also had the Grayson Waller effect with Shawn Michaels as a guest. Albert in gorilla position ensured HBK knew what he was doing by participating. When HBK entered, fans hijacked the segment, singing his theme song after the music stopped and also chanting for him. Waller said his younger self would be freaking out about interviewing Michaels, but now he's a Bret Hart guy because HBK is treating Waller the same way Vince McMahon treating Shawn, holding him back. HBK said he cut Waller loose, but he lost clean at Vengeance Day and had only himself to blame. Waller said HBK only got the job because Triple H had a heart attack, and Michael said it was the least he could do for his best friend. HBK said Hunter used to be in charge, but it's his show now. Waller assumed he not only wouldn't be on stand and deliver, but he's going to get cut after WrestleMania. HBK put over NXT, and Waller asked what it's even good for these days when so few people actually get called up to the main roster, saying that he's sick of it. HBK then lost his shit, refusing to let Waller talk shit about NXT, so Waller just straight up challenged him one-on-one -on -one for stand and deliver. Sean removed his jacket. He said WWE has been backing up the truck to get him to wrestle every single year, but Waller is not special. He's just the next one to challenge him. Michael said he'd like nothing more than whip his ass, but there's someone who wants it more. And suddenly, Johnny Gargano's new shitty music hit with him storming the ring to attack Waller to a huge ovation, and Waller, of course, was shell-shocked. Now, Waller's inability to shut his mouth sometimes makes his talking segments way more chaotic than they need to be. But he and HBK were great playing off one another. The segment was awesome. Tons of notable references by Waller. And overall, it's the perfect booking for Stand and Deliver, given Gargano has nothing on the main roster right now that precludes him from doing NXT. Doesn't seem like he's going to be on WrestleMania. It plays directly into Waller trying to retire Gargano with the chair shots on his NXT farewell a couple years ago, and is therefore a great piece of continuity Add to the fact that this match will obviously be tremendous, and it's just a great decision from top to bottom. On top of it, I believe I had that little Barry Horowitz. We've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks. Now, I hope this gets a big promotion on Raw in the form of Waller appearing on the show 
or at least calling out, if not attacking Gargano, doing things like that. He did really well when he got those chances when they did the crossover stuff. I think it was last year. And it's clear a main roster call-up is imminent for him. So there's every reason to do that crossover now. Wesley backstage was enthused about the excitement over challenging for the North American Championship, so much so that he's doing another open challenge next week. Axiom promised he would answer the challenge first next week because Nathan Frazier beat him to the punch last week. Now, it definitely feels this whole thing is going to lead to a multi-man match, and I highly doubt Axiom will actually challenge Wesley, given the fact that he called it ahead of time, so someone will probably jump him. But I do think we're going to get that multi-man match at Stand and Deliver, probably a ladder match, and that'll be a good booking if they do it. Gigi Dolan fought JC Jane. Dolan was largely on top early. Jane came back with a neckbreaker and a senton. Dolan then caught Jane with an abdominal stretch slam for a surprising and relatively sudden win that felt like it came out of nowhere. Jane attacked after the bell and put Dolan's head in a steel chair until two referees ran down and stopped her. Now, Gigi sold being significantly hurt anyway. JC got a ton of heat. This just didn't really hit for me at all, and I was really looking forward to the match. Now, obviously, the goal is to book it again, probably with a stipulation for stand and deliver. And you know what? Credit to NXT for not doing the lazy thing and just going with a DQ finish to make that rematch happen. But Gigi beat JC clean with perhaps a finishing move. And I'd have much preferred a small package or a crucifix pinning combination or something that gives JC an argument for a rematch. She's going to get one anyway, of course. But again, Dolan beat her ass clean here. So really, what else is there to do? Uh, Dijak fought Tony D'Angelo in a jailhouse match. This was basically an ambulance match with a jail cell on the ramp instead of the ambulance. Uh, Dijak hit high justice on a chair, but D'Angelo came back with an inverted superplex onto a stack of chairs. Then Dijak dropped an elbow off the top rope through a table that was already kind of halfway broken outside. Still impressive that he hit that. Uh, D'Angelo tried to break Dijak's dislocated finger from Vengeance Day and hit a Uranagi outside. Dijak grabbed stacks as D'Angelo threw him into the cell. Tony hesitated to sacrifice him that way, so Dijak shoved the door in his face and hit a spinning boot on stacks over the barricade. D'Angelo threw Dijak into the steps and wore him out with a chair, but Dijak mule kicked him when trying to get thrown in the cell. He followed with feast your eyes and dragged D'Angelo all the way into the cell, but Stax sacrificed his body to stop the door from closing. So Dijak hit him with feast your eyes. D'Angelo recovered with three huge crowbar shots and slammed the door on Dijak's head to get the win in what I can only describe as a straight up banger. Nearly everything about this match surprised me. I know Dijak can go, but I didn't think D'Angelo would keep up with him to this level. And I did not expect Tony to win Dijak's gimmick match. Now, some of the spots were fantastic. The finish was extremely well booked and we got a swerve as well. I went 3.75 stars B plus for just a purely entertaining opener. The only problem is I have no idea where they go with Dijak here after getting beaten in his own match and already losing the North American title match. So what's next for him? I mean, maybe it's a quick call up. They were reestablishing his gimmick and now they're going to call him up, but I don't see that happening either. Isla Dragunov got a promo package saying JD McDonough has no soul and only finds happiness when inflicting anguish. Dragunov said he'd never be broken. And immediately after that, Dragon Lee was randomly introduced to the NXT crowd. It was kind of odd to do that on a just a regular TV show unless he's going to immediately factor into Stand and Deliver. You know, if they're going to do that, why not save it for that show as a surprise opponent? It just... The whole thing is weird. Uh, the Dragunov promo package was short, and it just seems to be building for a match. Uh, Gallus called out pretty deadly for a face-to-face. 
They instead taunted from the crow's nest, angry that Gallus took their spot and won the tag team titles. It got heated with Deadly coming down for a scrap and Gallus easily dispatching them. It was really a rough segment. The NXT tag team division just feels absolutely dead right now. Gallus, I've said it numerous times, they are not hitting at all. It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. I doubt they switch the titles next week when they defend them, but they really should. It feels like Deadly is going to be on the main roster after WrestleMania, and Gallus, there just doesn't really seem to be any life in them for NXT in the United States. Tyler Bate was meditating with Thea Hale, trying to reduce her stress. Andre Chase walked up excited for her progress while Duke Hudson just rolled his eyes. Bates said nobody is without fear and everyone has to learn to fight through it. Hudson then came back to him after they all walked away to call him a snake oil salesman. So we got Chase against Joe Gacy in a scheduled match. Chase followed a Gacy Uranagi with a sunset flip powerbomb out of the corner. Thea stood up to Ava outside, but when Chase gave her a high five for overcoming her fears, Gacy caught him with the hangspring lariat for the win. Hale apologized for losing as they walked backstage. Chase accepted that. Hudson refused. He called Chase U an institution of losers. He said Chase U was pathetic and a bloody joke, and then he stormed off. So at least this appears to have popped off a little bit. We've been waiting for this to happen. It was more storyline continuation than anything else, so we'll see what happens next week. Uh, Josh Briggs visited Kiana James' new office, trying to put over Brooks Jensen as her admirer. There was a bouquet of red roses on her desk, and when Briggs went to grab the card to show that they were from Jensen, she snapped it out of his hands and hid it in a book. James agreed to call Jensen for a makeup date, but hiding that card obviously was sketchy as hell. Jensen and Fallon Henley later apologized to each other and quickly made up. Briggs mentioned the roses, which seemed to really confuse Jensen. Henley noticed that and pointed it out to Briggs, who actually agreed with her. Now, this was one of the better entries that we've gotten in the storyline, but it's still just meh to me and part of the show. Uh, Alba Fire and Isla Dawn lastly did a full moon ritual laughing that Caden Carter and Katana Chance are struggling to stay together and Ivy Nile and Tatum Paxley have never been harmonious. The idea was they would begin pursuing the women's tag team titles next week. This was far more interesting than Henley and James as champions and I just have to assume they're going to run this match at Stand and Deliver and change the titles and they're using them as transitional champions because otherwise there is no reason to have taken the title off the KCs and even so if the KCs are not going to get brought up, there still was no reason to take the titles off of them because they could have simply lost to Isla Dawn and Alba Fire, and that would have been okay. So I'm still really confused about what they're doing with the women's tag team division, but we will find out over the next few weeks. And that, folks, wraps up today's show. A full breakdown, of course, of AEW and NXT. On the way out, just before we forget, I did remember there was one news item I did not cover. That is a report from Tokyo Sports, a Japanese outlet, that Saray will be returning to Japan once her WWE contract expires, I believe in May. Obviously, Saray has not been on TV for a long time. And really, since signing with WWE, her entire situation has been rough and odd. She signed, but then because of the COVID-19 pandemic, was had a delay going to the United States for a year. She finally gets to the United States. NXT gets changed to 2.0. She first, you know, is kind of a regular character. Then she does the whole thing with the amulet and the schoolgirl turning into a superhero. And that never really got off the ground. She came back. She kept getting beat. I think Mandy Rose kind of squashed her. And then she disappeared from television. So, you know, Saray leaving WWE, it's unfortunate because she's a super talented wrestler. At the same time, you know, some of these women from Japan work in WWE. Asuka, Io Sky, Io Shirai. And Kyrie Sane totally worked, um, but some do not. And that's just the history of Japanese performers in the United States. Some like it, some don't. Uh, 
you know, Kyrie Sane had a nice run with WWE and was over as hell. She decided to go back to Japan, I believe, for her personal life and also because she liked wrestling more in stardom. So she's back over there and Saray will now basically do the same thing. Uh, it's an unfortunate kind of missed opportunity again because she is a super talent, but sometimes shit just doesn't work out. And this is one of those instances. WWE in NXT has a very strong women's division. And while she would have made it even stronger, it's not going to be weakened all of a sudden without her there. So that does officially wrap up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. On the way out, allow me to remind you that this show is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. If you leave a five-star written review, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, and so much more. You can get it all on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We will be back next week with our next WWE episode on Tuesday and our next AEW NXT episode on Thursday. At this time, the Silver King is going to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. <laughs>